Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. In today's cast chat, we'll discuss some of the themes we've been exploring in our second and third cycles of interviews, the Me Too movement, employing and contending with new technologies for chamber music education, and the shifting practices in coaching chamber music during the COVID crisis. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. Welcome to our second cast chat. Now, what does the cast chat mean? Well, it means that not only do I have one co-host, but I have two of my beautiful co-hosts. Above me in this Zoom call, I have the wonderful Adam Paul Cordell. Hello, Adam. Hi, Rosie. How are you? I'm doing just dandy. Thank you very much. And below me in this Zoom call, I have the wonderful and delightful Blair Kerner. How are you, Blair? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. All right. So just a quick reminder of what our cast chats are. This is a general roundup of what has happened in the previous cycle of four episodes and also a little bit of premonition of what is going to come up in the next cycle. So we talk about some of the issues that have been raised and also just general issues that are affecting musicians, whether they be performing or educating or anything in between. So to start off with, we're going to talk about the Me Too movement within music, which is something we briefly talked about in our last cast chat, especially with regards to our talk with 12th Day, the brilliant Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant harp and fiddle duo uh, who joined us for a very, very funny interview. So we hope you got to listen to it. Part of the reason we decided to talk about this is because Katrina and Esther of 12th Day have become very involved with something called the Bit Collective, which is trad music's response to the Me Too movement. And part of the reason why this has come up is finally people are going, oh yeah, what about music? We've had the the film industry has had their Me Too movement, but music seems to be a little bit further behind. Now, obviously, it's not only women who are contending with the ideas of sexual assault. And I must also add that there is a trigger warning uh, going forward, although we're not going to be going into explicit detail in anything we're talking about. If you are uncomfortable uh, listening to anything to do with this subject, please uh, feel free to either skip the episode or we will be going on to other uh, topics in about 15 minutes time. So America in particular is really having this resurgence in the last few years. There have been various things that have come up such as issues with James Levine, with Bill Purcell Jr. And one thing I would recommend you all reading is the Boston Globe's article on when the music industry will have its own Me Too movement. It's certainly happening now. However, in the UK, we sort of saw this happening back in 2012 with the Michael Brewer case. Michael Brewer was the head of music of a very well-known school of music, high school for music, and uh, there were many allegations against him over the years that eventually led to him going to prison. And actually a very sad case of uh, one of the women who went up against him, unfortunately, 
um, losing her life during the process. And you can find that article in The Guardian from 2012. All of these will be linked down in the description. So why are we talking about this? Well, as we mentioned, 12th Day had been talking about the idea of being young women in the industry and also how they're changing, how they're coming into their 30s and coming into themselves, but also realizing a lot of the stuff that's going on around them. To look even further ahead to cycle four, we are going to have the brilliant Kalia Vandeveer, who wrote a article about being the token jazz girl when she was studying at music college. And she was plastered on all over the posters. But then she had awful things happen to her, like walking into an improvisation room and having to play a improvisation based on what someone had written on the piece of paper. Someone wrote something incredibly offensive and incredibly triggering, and she just didn't know what to do because she was in a room surrounded by men who thought it was a joke. This is where this starts to get a little interesting and is something that we really do need to continue talking about. Being musicians, we have a lot of one-on-one -on -one instruction. It's very much a kind of master and apprentice style of learning. This is something that I have spoken about with Adam uh, previously is sort of having that kind of master apprenticeship relationship is how you become a wonderful musician, but you also have to be very careful with those power imbalances. And this can happen to absolutely anybody, but there are certainly a lot of music students who feel that their careers will be affected if they do not behave in a certain way. There are multiple education resources for improving power imbalances between mentors and mentees. Just as an example, many institutions now require that there be a window in the door. That's just a simple thing. It means that you can't cover up the window and people can walk past and see what's going on. I'm sure both of you have seen that in the institutions that you teach in. Adam, can you talk a little bit more about the educational institution roles? and how these change depending on the age of the students. Well, I think uh, it's interesting actually to look outside of music a little bit um, to some of these more publicized cases in terms of the child sex abuse uh, incidents with Jerry Sandusky and with Larry Nasser. Uh, we're all familiar with a lot of the um, issues around the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church. And a lot mm -hmm. of these sorts of things happened, as you say, because of the issues with um, imbalances in power dynamics. So one of the things that is particularly interesting to look at as we're trying to consider how to address inappropriate behavior at the college level or at later levels is to actually examine what it is that's happening at um, very early ages. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that a lot of educators have been really focused on in recent years is making certain that children are learning from very young ages what it means to consent. So for mm -hmm. instance, one of the things that we've really seen uh, educators take a hold of recently is the idea that things like tickling, things like touching, hugging, it always needs to be framed in the perspective of asking a child if this is something that they are okay with, asking uh, and, and gaining consent for any sort of breach of the distance that we normally expect. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's, it's interesting to see how this 
type of consent at younger ages is also finding its way into the studio. So you speak about the one-on-one -on -one instruction and the interactions between a mentor and a mentee. And one of the things that uh, I think was largely overlooked in the private studio was the idea that teachers shouldn't be coming into contact with students, shouldn't be shaping their bow holds, let's say, or um, repositioning shoulders without having a conversation with the student about number one, why it's necessary and being very direct uh, about explaining um, what it is that the teacher hopes to accomplish and also asking for permission to do that. Because when you really think about it, without having that kind of consent structure, you can even be defeating yourself because um, some people are very uncomfortable with that kind of touch. Uh, and that only actually um, undermines what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Playing an instrument, it is something that sometimes it is easier as a teacher to say, oh, hang on, from a harpist perspective, can you bring your elbow up? Can uh, sort of tapping a child's wrist to just bring it in? But I always say, do you mind if I slightly reposition you? Uh, can you, and if they're very tense, sort of say, can you shake your wrist up? But you always make sure that you ask them. But there is a lot that you can do with not touching your student. It's, I, I don't think that it's a perfect thing, but it's something that I think we've all learned is certainly a possibility. Well, and I might add actually on that, it's really interesting and, and frankly kind of awesome what Zoom has forced teachers to have to learn how to do, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, and I can tell you from a person who teaches Suzuki that, you know, when parents are in the studio in person, you know, I've always involved parents and asked them to help with certain things and, and guided them through a whole process. But now having to actually tell the parent step by step this is what i need to be able to see this is what i'm hoping you might be able to do it, it just it's actually i want to believe that it's improved my teaching and i'll know for sure yeah. of course when we're back to in-person lessons but <laughs> i've i have found that that has been a really positive development that allows me to use language in a much more structured and helpful way for parents to be able to take home and work with their kids Absolutely. Uh, Blair, is there a difference with uh, with wind instruments with regards to this? Because obviously strings, there is a difference in how you teach. So I, I do wonder if there, um, how you have been finding this. Um, obviously with us, uh, there's a lot of breathing things. So there's a lot of expansions of chests and so forth. So we've gotten used to putting our hands on our own backs and having them imitate us and then feeling the lung capacity. But before once upon a time, you might even have someone, you know, put your hand against the back and they can feel the expansion versus just visually seeing it. Mm -hmm. And now that's not something that happens anymore as well as obviously yeah. um, embouchure shapes and formations. Uh, we never usually touch that, but there's always imitation of it and, and demonstrating it. And now we have the additional thing of masks that are covering that up. But read sharing oh, really? um, was a thing too, hmm. because you have to edit reads to tweak them, at least in the double read world. And then you hand it right back. And uh, you know, in addition to um, germs passing now and being much more mindful of that, it's also putting up to like, really, is that, was that what we need to do? Can it be more of an audible thing? Because sometimes people do it through feedback rather than just by sound. So yeah. um, there's definitely a lot of this 
back and forth and just familiarity that happens in these rooms that is now being challenged and addressed. And that familiarity I would like to add is also something to consider outside of these rooms. So we talked a lot about, you know, a student teacher power relationship within a classroom, but then there's outside of it too. So some of the things that personally as a professor that I refuse to do is I don't befriend my students on social media. I don't no. want them, yeah. I, they have my cell phone number so they can call me if they're coming late to a lesson, but I don't like them to text me. Um, and I actually put up barriers because there are certain things that should be acceptable and professional and there's certain things that aren't acceptable and professional. And getting text at like one o'clock in the morning from a kid panicking about their submission being late to a school is a legitimate thing, but I don't really wanna be having a conversation with them no matter the topic that late at night or early in the morning, but it also isn't, the best for either too. So when people start going through records and seeing things, usually when, you know, um, conversations of invitations, as mentioned in some of the articles that you had mentioned, there was, you know, messaging late at night through platforms. Mm -hmm. And so that's something we have to take a step back from as well and think about how are you interacting with them, uh, through, um, email, you know, uh, for under age students. So for, uh, community music schools and so forth, always having a parent, uh, it's an email attached mm -hmm. or making sure it's a group message. Um, and then for ones mm -hmm. who get to the college personally, I just don't have my students interact with me through social media period and then texting as well. No. Um, so I'm always like, okay, email me. That's great. Only text me if you're running late to a lesson or there's an absolute 100% emergency. And also mm -hmm. I won't respond to you after these hours because, you know, I have a life and I want to sleep and do other things, but also there's a, there's a sub layer there too, which is what's appropriate. And I've had gotten texts late at night from professors just because they're like, oh, by the way, could you do this? Because they're working, they're thinking of it. It's 1130 and it's just a pop in their mind and they go for it. So thinking about that and thinking about those, those barriers and how you establish those from the get-go. So there isn't that blurring. Um, you know, there is a lot of studio parties that happen around the holidays at the end of the school year and everyone gets invited. And, you know, um, some professors are very, very strict about alcohol getting involved and some aren't. Um, and so, you know, those types of things where it's like, okay, great. They all show up. They all leave at the same time. They should be in groups. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be any, from my opinion, alcohol involved, period. Uh, family members should be there too. So it's just a big party, but there shouldn't ever yeah. be a chance where there's only one or two people there with that, that professor in a house. No, no, Building a, a wonderful yeah. relationship and a mentor-mentee relationship, but maintaining that professionalism so there isn't anything that can get misconstrued or anything that actually could lead into actual problems. I think I also come from a slightly slightly different background from you two, obviously, because I'm not American. We do have a slightly more friendly relationship, I think, certainly with regards to college professors. Uh, and I was actually quite shocked when I, I came to the US. So when we finished studio class in, in my undergrad, my teacher, who I absolutely adore, would say, okay, all of you, you can leave your egos in the room if you would like to come join for a glass of wine to de-stress after a long, stressful day, you can do that and or, or just come and chat or whatever. And that was actually a really important bonding experience. But again, it was in the college bar. It was in this big open room with all the other students and other people who were going to concerts or other professors. So it was more of a building collegial relationships, which I, I think is kind of lost. But again, it's a really blurry line. It's very difficult to strike a balance with it. Well, and there are ways to create 
the seeds for collegial relationships that don't necessarily require that you be having that kind of laxness mm. during your studies, right? I mean, you can have conversations with professors. How are you? How have things been going? There's a very delicate and appropriate way to be able to have those conversations that will set the standard for respect that you can follow for the rest of your professional life. I'm going to use that as a segue because none of us can see each other in person at the moment. So let's talk about using technology to see each other. Blair, I'm going to throw this to you to start the discussion on this. So moving on to technology and what COVID has challenged all of us to learn, explore, and participate with, um, one of the things that the podcast, there's definitely a theme, is understanding and how to utilize these technologies in different ways. And so we've talked to those who have created their own podcasts. We've talked to those who have done live streaming concerts. We've talked to those who have been doing a lot of recording as of late. And so this all puts us in this highlight around technology and different uses. But interestingly enough, um, and even though some of this was mentioned directly in the conversations and sometimes before and after, um, there's a theme of having to learn this material for the first time because we haven't been taught it before. And so it's in the classical realm and in the chamber realm as well. Um, there isn't automatically technology courses or things that are in, uh, involved into our curriculum. Yes, we've got the history and the theory and incredibly valuable things, but technology isn't one of those guaranteed things. So how do you end up learning it along the way? How do you know how to utilize certain microphones and materials? Because it is of value importance. Because if you're planning on applying to a summer festival or a master's program, they're going to ask for a video or audio file of yours. If you're planning on going into collegiate teaching, they're going to ask you to record yourself as a teacher or record um, your, you know, your lessons or look at some of the recordings of you performing. And if you're lucky, you will have some recital materials or other performances from professional um, audio uh, engineers that have developed things for you. But if you're not and you're doing a local church recital, how are you even setting that up to get recorded? So I wanted to open the floor to both you and how did you learn technology um, and was it, how did you uh, get it involved into your curriculum? Was it part of something your teachers taught you? Was it something you pursued on your own? So how did technology kind of come into your uh, circle of knowledge? Well, I am a uh, designated techophobe. And there is a reason why I do not do the editing for the podcast. But mm -hmm. that being said, um, this is something that I have kind of fumbled my way through and just kind of learned a little bit by trial and error. Talking about learning this in college, the interesting thing is both of my wonderful professors, um, my hot professors who I've had, both of them at separate times had asked me for advice on some of these things when the pandemic first hit. And I was able to help them. It was, it was stuff that was rudimentary enough that I could suggest, uh, make suggestions on all sorts of things. But it was kind of a uh, interesting thing that I'm like, oh, I'm learning at the same time and you're like the top of your career and you don't know this either. That makes me feel a little bit better. But <laughs> I think getting hold of the equipment is such an important for the longest time. At the beginning of the pandemic, I had an older iPhone that the battery lasted about 20 minutes. If, so I had to have it plugged in if I was ever doing a live stream. I didn't have a separate microphone or anything like that. And something that a dear colleague of mine mentioned a few months ago is that popular musicians, jazz musicians, 
have been doing this for years and they're kind of going what we've we told you why didn't you do this before because now blue yeti microphones are out of stock because you've all bought them Mm -hmm. Um, but that's it's something that I think it gave us all a big kick up the caboose to actually realize that we we need to drag our careers to the 20th, the 21st century a little more than we had done. And I, I think we'd kind of rested on our laurels, just not re- obviously not realizing something like this was going to happen. But it also means that we've had to learn very quickly. And I hope going forward with regards to education that we all implement this in our teaching. Yeah, I mean, if I were to be honest, the the main thing that has inspired me and, and helped me to learn technology recently is that my partner is very much into technology and the use of technology in his teaching. And I am indebted to him for being able to get through the very beginnings of this whole process because in March, I did not, I didn't understand what gain was and I didn't know what made a microphone <laughs> good or bad. And I didn't know how to use digital audio workstations. And I didn't know how to do all of these things. And, you know, my experience with technology really was mostly around live streaming. And I think a lot of that is it owes to the classical music world's uh, aversion, or, or maybe it's not even an aversion. It's just this desire for perfection and this desire for a standard of performance that is precise. And I think that there's a lot of nobility in that for sure. But I think that it's led a lot of classical musicians to try to avoid technology because they see technology as something that helps performance uh, and helps to cover up things that you wouldn't want people to hear. I can tell you from my experiences with a lot of my mentors that the idea is, well, you wouldn't need a microphone if you had a better sound production technique. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think now that we are where we are, we've learned, okay, well, Actually. I mean, maybe there's maybe there's some legitimacy to some some of that thought process, but there's so much more that technology can do for us that we need to uh, take advantage of. To answer your question, a lot of my learning how to use technology never had to do with any of my training, but has had everything to do with the current circumstances and trying to figure out the best possible way to get the best possible result. Absolutely. And actually, just to follow on from that, I when we interviewed John from the Jack Quartet, he made this same comment of going, because of what's going on at the moment, I, I'm not saying that recordings are rough and ready, but it's less of that kind of gleamy, shiny CD. There are no possible mistakes in it. It's There is a little bit more of a coming back down to earth moment of, hi, we are we're musicians, we're not robots when we're performing. And I think that's very important. And perhaps certainly with regards to viewing recording, we'd kind of lost some of that. Well, it's interesting because I think we've got a few different things, you know, COVID obviously has challenged us to think about the DIY factor because we all have to DIY it right now. We all have to do it from our homes. Um, And so there's that side of things, which I think there's a lot of value to because let's be honest, students aren't going to go out when they're doing a pre-recording for a, you know, festival or something like that and to a studio and have these conversations. They're going to do it in a classroom with whatever materials they have. That might be their phone. That might be fortunately be a um, a recording um, that's like a task home that can record 
it onto itself. That might be directly into a computer. But then there's also the flip side, which is going into and, and working with studio professionals and so forth. And that never also happens in, uh, in our um, uh, chaining either, right? So how many no. students actually go into a studio and actually know how to talk to an audio engineer? I actually know where the microphone is supposed to be placed on their instrument just to follow up because let's be honest, for me as a bassoonist, a lot of audio engineers I work with have no clue where to put it on my instrument. They're like, uh, I'm like, okay, two feet away, you know, and I help with them a little bit, or it has to be room because two feet away, then you get the clicky sound. So like, what's, what sound do you want? So even just the language, the understanding of the type of uh, outcomes that you're wanting, what type of materials might be useful for that. So, so talking about microphones themselves, talking about the interfaces, as you had mentioned before, talking about software, you know, what's the purpose of this? How's it going to be produced? Where's it going to be hosted? Okay. Now you've got the final product. Are you putting it out there onto a CD? Are we putting it up online? You know, and all these other things that you have to consider whether we decided to do the DIY or whether it's the studio side of things, technology is very much involved into our world, especially in the chamber world and having a little bit of a background in it would have been really, really nice so that we're all not mm -hmm. kind of floundering and then having maybe not the greatest results for the first time. I'm curious now that we've talked about what it's like personally, and Rosie, you had alluded this, talking about what it's like be as an, as, as an educator right now, right? Yeah. Because all students are now putting their juries online or auditioning through online or, you know, submitting their own individual parts so we can splice it all together and create this beautiful chamber piece. But that also puts up the question is who's training these students? Right. Mm -hmm. So as educator, when you're listening to this and you're judging and adjudicating, first and foremost, do you have any resources that you can send to your students, um, are your schools or your programs offering training sessions on how to set things up? Or are you doing it yourself? Or is that not even a conversation that's happening and you're just going to, whatever happens, happens and whatever the result is, we just go with it because they just need to submit something. Probably the uh, the closest thing I have had to that was actually from right at the beginning of the pandemic. So one of my one of my uh, senior students in high school was applying to colleges and she was putting together her materials and she was desperate to do her recording in a big shiny hall. You don't you don't need to hire a big shiny hall to do this. I really admire that you want to do that. <laughs> That's great. But as a teenager and sort of recording can bring about the same kind of nerves as a performance can, depending on who the person is. It, it's a little stressful to say to a 17, 18 year old, yes, you're going to go into this room. You have two hours. You must get a good cut in this. Likelihood is they are going to get a good take, but what if they don't? What if they completely go to pieces? What if their mm -hmm. instrument isn't behaving? When the pandemic hit and she realized that she would have to be recording at home, I said, look, you're going to have to do it on your phone or your iPad. Test things out. Do multiple mm -hmm. recordings. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying do 50 recordings of a piece in a row because you are going to be tired. And also you might play a piece and you get, uh, you have a memory slip or a string breaks or- Cat walks by. A cat walks by, especially <laughs> if you are at home. So that that was something that my student was contending with. And she got into the school she wanted. She got a nice shiny scholarship. But it was a lot of, okay, you need to realize that doing this in a set amount of time is not going to work for your particular anxieties. Do it in a section of your house. Work with, you've got nice flooring. It's got a reasonably nice acoustic for recording in a house. It's just work with that. It's interesting because I think that uh, in terms of what it is or how it is that we're incorporating 
technology education into our teaching. I think a lot of it is important to consider in terms of what the outcomes are and what the age of the student is, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, to go to the to the farthest extreme, I'm just thinking from my own perspective as a person with a DMA, how helpful would it have been for my terminal project to have been recording an album? Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've discussed this before. I think that's hugely important. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, this is something that I've been on a campaign about for years, yeah. but it's it's funny because it's it's that's an expected outcome if you're going to be teaching at the collegiate level of the type of creative activity that you're doing yeah. and yet it's not something that we are formally trained in and something that i am starting to see uh, in institutions around the country is that those sorts of expectations are becoming standard or at least uh considered mm -hmm. and we've we're starting to see more technology and music classes that are trying of course to encompass the entirety of music technology which is <laughs> yeah. perhaps not the best thing to do in a semester but at least better than what it used to be but i think it's it's interesting to to kind of consider what is it that we can do with what it is that we have what is affordable for the student mm -hmm. what is going to be necessary for them to experience some level of success and how can we dovetail this with the other types of skills that they may need you know i think about my high schoolers and they're not all going into music mm -hmm. but these are still skills that can be very useful if they go down certain tracks mm -hmm. absolutely and i just wanted to so we're talking about accessibility mm -hmm. for students but what about teachers i i mean a lot of these uh we'll talk about adjunct professors at universities who do not have a salary or potentially don't have a salary if they don't have an orchestra job or something on um in addition, or high school teachers who don't have, or band teachers who don't have access to this stuff. It's, the technology is incredible and it's doing a lot of beautiful things, but there is still that financial barrier. And that's going to challenge us is how we move forward, right? So, and um, so that, that accessibility thing is really, really important across multiple fronts. As you mentioned, there's the institutional educators, students, um, and all have different uh, barriers around them. And that accessibility, as you mentioned, is accessibility of finance. So do these mm -hmm. institutions, do these teachers, do these students have the money, especially in the middle of a year when they've already budgeted it out for institutions, you know, yeah. at the end of last semester, and then only over the summer having to come up with the funds or something. So then there's accessibility, as we mentioned before, of just the equipment, you know, yeah. the Lou Yetis disappeared in a blink of an eye, right? <laughs> so like, there's yeah. so much stuff out there that suddenly just completely disappeared. And now we just couldn't access it. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's this accessibility things, you know, it doesn't just go be technology. There's also now, you know, students having accessibility to books, in different countries yeah. that they can't actually access now because they're studying from a different country. Wi-Fi was the next one that I'm thinking. Good Wi-Fi that's stable so that when you are doing a live you know, audition or a jury, uh, it's not choppy. I've had uh, yeah. students perform for me for their, their final performances and Zoom would slow it down and then speed it up. And I was like, I'm really hoping that's, that's Zoom and not your tempo because you've been consistent up until this point. <laughs> so there's Wi-Fi. There's also space. As you mentioned before, you know, you said your student had a lovely access to a space that has resonant sound. I have struggled so hard in my apartment to find a place to record my instrument because everything is carpeted. So unless I go into the bathroom and it's a small one, that's just way too much. So I've closed every door, sat in every spot, went to my kitchen, but it's an open kitchen. And I've recorded in so many different spaces and I struggle to find a good one that isn't like 
problematic with either heat going off or sound absorption, so even a good location. And for these students that are trying to audition for something or for faculty that are trying to do these live recitals and so forth, um, you have to be careful of where that might be. I've had students who had taken lessons with me and they're in their kitchen and their family's walking by and making dinner and their cat's jumping up onto their thing and their family's talking to them as if they're not in the middle of a lesson. So there's also that lack of understanding. So the lack of space was obviously a problem for the student. And as we talk and mentioning about our first topic, going into a private bedroom was probably not the best bet for just a one-on-one lesson. Um, So instead it was an open space, which I understood, but there was also like limited understanding of um, what that would entail with the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. I've had TVs on in the background while the students and their parents are just watching right there. And I'm like, could could the students in the middle of a lesson that you've paid for but this is, I understand this might be your only space, but like, is there any way that this could be, you know, move somewhere else? Is there any way we yeah. can give them that the absolute focus so they're not distracted by like the, you know, dog barking on the TV? Um, so there's a lot of issues, uh, technology involved, as well as some other things that have popped up as we started recognizing. And I think it's starting to give us a little bit of an insight into our students, um, mm-hmm. into our own lives and into what's available and what we take for granted. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So that's just something as we move forward, as you said, to challenge ourselves and challenge our institutions to think about how can we keep utilizing technology? Um, where will we utilize technology? How can we make this more accessible for all of our community if it's going to be incorporated into our education, into our training? I wanted to add a plus side of using this. Very quick plus side uh, before we move on to the next thing is this has broken down barriers to some extent. I mean, obviously we know that there are certain technologies that don't work in parts of the world unless you have a VPN, but this has meant that I I got to bring my wonderful teacher from the UK. She came in and did a masterclass for my students in Rochester. And that was something that would have been hellishly expensive to do in any other position and we would have had to mess around with visas but this was a one-off thing where students paid what they felt the masterclass was worth or what they were able to and that worked really well it meant I could send some money to someone who I really respect and she gave so much to my students that is a plus side of this so Mm -hmm. little silver linings we have to take them where they are so I wanted to speak a little bit about chamber music pedagogy and the impacts on chamber music pedagogy in many ways, actually, as a uh, extension of the discussion on technology, but also just more broadly, the more creative uh, ways that we've thought to use chamber music education to uh, serve some of these goals. The two different things that a lot of chamber music educators have really been facing this past year has been around the uh, challenges of doing in-person coachings mm-hmm. and doing online coachings, right? And, you know, and certainly there are many different models that often involve hybrid approaches and things like that. But, you know, I'll start off by talking a little bit about the changes around in-person coachings, such as the the necessity for social distancing mm-hmm. and the, uh, the challenges that are faced by certain instruments and voices versus others, right? Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've bitten my mask <laughs> while trying to put my mouth back on the reed. <laughs> most awkward thing in the world. I'm like, oh, that's fabric. Okay. I know, right. And then on top of that, then you have this like soaking yep. mask in front of you. Yeah. Well, and so it's interesting because I mean, you know, a lot of, I mean, as a string player, I think a lot of the things that 
we've really faced have been around mostly around the distance issue, right? When we play chamber music, everything that we do is around trying to get as close as possible, right? And now we can't do that. And so now trying to learn how to have a unified sound as an ensemble is is much more challenging because you aren't as close to each other to be able to actually uh, respond to one another's types of sounds in the same way that we used to be able to. But as Blair mentions, you know, the 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 big the bigger issue happens to be for brass players and wind players who are having to do things at a 12-foot distance or having to do things. Um, I, I mean, I was reading the International Coalition of Performing Arts Aerosol Study and, uh, you know, reading uh, some very specific things about how, you know, six foot for most instrumentalists, as long as they're in a straight line and all pointing mm -hmm. ahead, um, except for the trombone, which needs to be nine feet and vocalists need to be 12 wow. feet. And, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just, it's amazing how precise we've been able to get about understanding these things. The, the layout, as you mentioned, is prime. You know, I was fortunate that we had a quartet this year, so all of us could fit into one room instead of a quintet. And so they all had to be facing my direction 12 feet away, mm -hmm. which is great when right. I'm conducting, but once they start conducting themselves, they're like, can we move because we can't see? So we had to like move a piano and sh completely reshift. And they were like sitting in the absolute corners of the room and still oh, had like God. a piano in the way or something. But they're like, we'll just figure it out because it was the only thing that they could do with the space that we have. Right. And well, and in, in many cases, I mean, I know that my preference this past semester was to take things outside. Mm -hmm. And that just makes things difficult in their own way, but at least better because you feel like there's a little bit more safety in that. Yes. However, this doesn't solve the problem for the winter and early spring months where people are going to really be struggling to find ways to do things in person in a safe way. And this gets back to the space accessibility issue. You know, that's been one major thing that we've been really having to cope with. The The masking has been a major issue. As a person who plays with the vocalist often, I find that uh, I really watch her, her mm -hmm. mouth to be able to know when I need to use my bow in a certain way. And I don't have that anymore. It's really requiring a lot of changes in, in thinking in terms of um, rehearsal. The other thing that a lot of in instrumentalists are facing uh, difficulties around are bell covers. And I think certainly, Blair, you can speak to this. Oh, yeah. I had my student, I was like, um, so the school gave us bell covers. Okay. I was like, okay, hold it up. And she holds up the thing that was probably the size of um, a half dollar. And I was mm -hmm. like, uh, what's that? And she was like, they <laughs> bought the same one for clarinets, oboes, and bassoons. And she was like, yeah, it's so tight at the top when I actually stretch it over that like it like makes a sound. So first of all, the one that they gave, if so again, accessibility, which is great, but it was too small. So the bell covers are problematic as it is in the low register because um, especially our lowest note, all the air goes out through the bell. And if mm -hmm. you put anything over top of that, it just doesn't come out. So like low B flats are just not happening. Um, um, but then with this one on top of it, it was like super epically problematic for any of our low register because a lot of the air wasn't escaping because it was just, it was too small. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think the thing that's been really interesting though, and, and kind of to, to turn a little bit towards the remote coaching element, a lot of what people are starting to really focus on is these recording projects, right? And using chamber music as a forum for teaching technology education, teaching students how to record, teaching students how to do things like digital audio workstations. Yeah. I mean, I can say from my own personal experience that I have really opted to uh, 
use the digital audio workstation and the recording project as the thing that we are doing to coach chamber music. You know, and and I've been doing this at at really young levels. I've been doing it at the college level. I've been doing it with people who are trying to accomplish different things. But the thing that's been really uh, fascinating is teaching students using a digital audio workstation because it becomes not only a an aural thing that you can hear, you can tell that you're not together, or you can tell that uh, the pitch isn't quite right, but you can also see it. It's amazing with Zoom and screen sharing, being able to just screen share your logic in my case, and being able to, to show them, do you see how the little bubble is much bigger here and yours, uh, you know, this other instrument over here is a lot, you know, is a lot bigger and they're supposed to be right over top of each other, but they're not. And so it's been an interesting uh, catalyst for being able to have these sorts of conversations. This of course gets back to this idea of, of financial accessibility and software accessibility and things like that. So it's it's interesting because this is an opportunity for us to really think about, well, what are all of the things that we actually need? You know, and one of those things that I've been seeing a lot is, uh, you know, people are playing around with things like Soundtrap and BandLab, which are online digital audio workstations, which are pretty glitchy and bumpy in different ways, but um, but great as a resource, the money to be able to do so, right? Um, things like acapella have been really amazing, seeing students layer their mm -hmm. own videos on top of each other and, and assigning different orders so that students sort of get the experience of playing in chamber music. So anyway, the thing that I, I think is, is really interesting about where we are is that a lot of the type of work that we have adapted to and are doing are things that I think we need to keep as we move forward into the future. But certainly there are many things that we are also hoping will be developed and, and will be successful as we move forward. Um, but, you know, I wonder what the two of you have been experiencing in terms of the type of coaching that you've mm -hmm. been doing. Over the summer, I am... Um... That was my first coaching thing. So I taught um, 70 students, high school students, a careers class, class, and then I taught all the wood ones. And normally I'd chop them up into little groups and we do this whole thing. And so we were completely 100% virtual. And so putting them into groups was just not going to be feasible. And uh, it was a quick turnaround for, okay, we're going to go virtual. So asking them to go and find materials and, and finding the interface just at that point, I was like, you know what, let's just do this a different way. So instead it was just learning about chamber. So we went from typical styles of chamber groups for the winds. We talked about the wind and quintet, and then we, we went through time essentially. So about the harmony music, and then, you know, uh, explored that. And then we listened to some pieces and then I had them go search for pieces um, outside of the ones that I listed. So then they started thinking about where do I find music? So in just outside of YouTube, and we looked at different databases and places that I can find music for. And we went all the way through up until today with the Reed Quintet, which is a very new group. Um, there's not that many examples of fantastic uh, people, although we will be having one uh, Acropolis coming up in a little while, hopefully. Um, um, but, you know, so we talked about all of that. So there was a few things that we did was we, one, research what type of music exists and ensembles that exist out there. So suddenly now they're being more aware of the field, the playing field, so to speak. Two, starting to articulate things that they hear. And I, I started realizing that, you know, they might know different words, you know, Italian words, yes, the dynamics, yes, articulation, so forth, but 
they wouldn't know how to describe it. So I would do comparisons. I'd play a minute of one piece and a minute of another ensemble playing the exact same piece. And we talk about them and we compare them. What was good, what was bad, what was just different. And sometimes it was recording. It sounded very far away versus this sounded like really well produced. And the articulation of being able to understand how to listen and then identify was wonderful because when that would help them do it down the road is how do they provide constructive feedback to each other right because they're usually very scared of that they're always used to a teacher doing that and they don't feel like they know enough and that was the comment i don't know enough to be able to give you feedback i'm like if that was you playing what would you think of yourself and how would you make a suggestion on how to improve it um so there's a lot of that assessment which I found to be incredibly valuable because suddenly they were able to articulate and go, you know what, I really liked about this, but if we were doing it, I would want to do it this way instead. And so that identification is suddenly now they're assessing beyond just, okay, I'm going to play it. And then whatever the teacher tells me is how I fix it. <laughs> right. Well, and two, I mean, just to, to uh, piggyback on that idea a little bit, I think I am certainly guilty in my former teaching life of telling students that they should record themselves, right? But, you know, never following up on that to make sure that they know what are they listening to, you know? And so coming to find that a lot of my students, when I tell them to record themselves, they'll record themselves playing the entire movement and then they're not motivated to listen to the entire thing. And so I'm like, actually really you should be recording just four to eight measures and you should be identifying some of the things that you want to change about those. Um, so I think, you know, that's that's been a really powerful tool uh, in the growth of recording. I think the other thing that's been really interesting, too, that you mentioned, Blair, is, is just seeing the the growth of, of students learning everything around chamber music rather than just focusing. I mean, I think that we all get into this this moment of, well, I see you once a week for an hour and I, you know, I just have to make sure that you're able to play this thing and play it mm-hmm. well. Right. But now being in a space where actually they have to learn how to do analysis, not just their mm-hmm, analysis mm-hmm. of themselves, but analysis of the yep. score. Right. Yeah. And we actually have to have the time to be able to sit down and figure out what do you need to know before you even try to record this and put this together with everyone, you know. Um, and that's been a really powerful growth. And just to sort of I very briefly piggyback, I've had two chamber classes that I have taught this semester. One has been for grad students, uh, two graduate uh, string quartets and teaching them how to do outreach. And that has been really informative because one of the groups wasn't meeting in person. They then had to do everything virtually and they created two beautiful outreach programs that um, included obviously them playing but also them introducing themselves Uh, they put together an outreach project for kids that um, the basis was around like 1940s jazz so Mm. they taught uh, dance one of the violinists taught uh, some dance moves so that if this went into schools kids would get to get their energy out a little bit and it was beautifully edited and it's something that a member of the quartet taught himself how to do and then another member made an arrangement of peace and all sorts of things and that was brilliant now the other Uh, class that I taught was a pre-college chamber class which both of you presented at in different weeks we did some improvisation classes Uh, my roommate wrote a a developed actually a brilliant web page which was an improvisation game and it's really fun and if anyone is interested I'm happy to send you the uh, the page for it but it would create a set of instructions and it meant that students could play together online 
No, it's not the Shostakovich Eighth Quartet, but it is something that meant that they could make music together and also learn about all the other things that bring music together that we don't really talk about, certainly as classical musicians. So I think that the thing that's interesting, at least in in the direction that chamber music pedagogy is taking is just the creative element to, or well, we never thought to try before, and what is now available to us. And I think something too that I just want to augment about what both of you were suggesting is just the, the openness and the creativity with which coaches and players can take their chamber music studies these days. Mm-hmm. And all of the different angles and parameters. And I think it's interesting just to to start considering as educators, how can we restructure our educational objectives and maybe even integrate them more fully through this platform of chamber music education where students can rely on one another's expertise to develop new and innovative ways of understanding what it is that they're doing. And now... Let's do a preview of what is coming next. So in the next four episodes, episode 11 through 14, we will have Pascal LeBeuf, a brilliant and hilarious composer on January 20th. Episode 12 is Third Coast Percussion on February 3rd. Episode 13 is the innovative and wonderful Fifth House Ensemble on February 17th. And finally, episode 14 is with the wonderful soprano Tony Arnold on March 3rd. If you have any questions or quibbles or anything like that, please get in touch with us on our social medias. And we do also now have a website. You may have seen this. Please do engage with us. We have a newsletter that will be coming out. You can subscribe to us through the website and we really do want to engage with you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit our website at www.soundweaverscast.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Gordel. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.